Well, I am uh, excited about, you know, the message that I'll be preaching today, the series that I'm in, which basically uh, is defined as Mysteries of the Kingdom. And this is the third Sunday I'm in this series on Mysteries of the Kingdom. The Greek word defined mystery is mysterion, and it means not profitable to your understanding meaning there are things about the kingdom of God that are not going to profit your understanding that have to be revealed to you, that you have to see by the Spirit of God. And so talking about these mysteries in Mark chapter 4, we've seen that it's given unto you, if you're a believer, to know the mysteries of the kingdom. It's the will of God that you know these mysteries that they not be a mystery to you. They are to anyone that is without. Unless they're converted, their sins be forgiven them. Uh, the kingdom is a mystery completely to them. But to you it's given to know the mysteries of the kingdom. There are ten of them that I'm going to be preaching on over the course of this series. And, uh, and I think that our revelation of these mysteries in particular is what positions us for the kind of growth in God that we want to have. Remember, Jesus said it'll be unto you according to your faith. But the truth is, uh, faith doesn't come until you have a revelation of what God's saying in His Word. Do you get that? I mean, you can learn a lot of Word. And knowledge is the first step toward revelation you got to know about it before God can reveal it to you. But there are lots of people that know a lot of Bible, can even quote it to you, uh, that really have had no revelation of it at all. It, it has little or no meaning in the practical matters of their life. And so, basically, uh, revelation is going to depend, determine your growth in faith. Faith can't come without revelation. That really, they're really almost synonymous terms. And that's something you need to be aware of. Uh, faith is how your life is going to be determined. Uh, faith is how answers are going to come to you. Uh, and so, of course, faith is all important. And it's not going to happen without revelation. So revelation is a really important subject for us to spend time on. And there's one revelation in particular that I began with last week that provides a larger context of understanding. You could call it a big picture understanding within which your understanding of these other mysteries will fit. It'll help you rightly divide the word to get the big picture understanding that you need to have. And that big picture mystery we see in Romans chapter 6, verse 25, we're not going to go there now, but it's referred to in the amplified rendering of that verse as the mystery of the plan of redemption. If you don't understand the mystery of the plan of redemption, you lack much of the context that's going to be required to understand the other mysteries we're going to be looking at. And so this is why I've started with this particular mystery, the plan of redemption. Started last Sunday, 
we made the point that redemption isn't just applicable to humanity, but to all of God's creation. So to have the right context or understanding for other parts of the Word to be revealed to us, we need to go all the way back to the beginning, uh, to when, you know, the problem started and redemption, either in terms of creation or humanity, uh, was needed. And so we went back to Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, in the dateless past, we talked about the pre-Adamic, pre-Adamite creation that occurred there. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. We talked about the cataclysmic event on planet earth that made the earth without form and void. It wasn't created that way. God said in Ezekiel 45, 18, he creates nothing without form or void, but to be inhabited. And so we can assume there was a creation in the dateless past, right out of the box. Science says it could have been as much as 15 billion years ago. The scripture doesn't refute that. And so in the beginning, in the dateless past, there was a creation that was destroyed by a cataclysmic event, which was Lucifer's attempt uh, to rebel against God. He led one-third of the angelic host in rebellion. Uh, Michael uh, led God's forces of angelic warriors to defeat um, Lucifer, later to be called Satan, and uh, cast Satan and all of those rebellious angelic hosts back into the earth. That was the source of the cataclysm that made the earth without form and void. We see that by Scripture revealed in Ezekiel, in Isaiah, in Jeremiah, as Old Testament prophets were given a glimpse of the world that then was. And so we can understand that the process of recreation is what began in Genesis chapter 3. And that's why God uses words like replenish the earth when he brought man back into his, brought man into existence in his image, his likeness. He said, replenish the earth because it had already been populated and that earth had been destroyed. But so we see the process of recreation beginning in Genesis 1, 3. And uh, when God made Adam, that's the only thing that can be dated to 6,000 years ago. God made man from the dust of the ground and breathed the breath of life into him and he became a living soul. That's when man in his present form and present capacities uh, was created. 6,000 years ago, the genealogies can be, take us back to that point in time. And so uh, at that point in time, uh, Adam being created in God's image and likeness, had free moral agency. He had the right to choose his own destiny unlike any other life form on earth. And so basically, it was God's will that he have dominion over this earth and everything in it. Uh, And this is leading into his eternal, his purpose for the eternal ages to come. Uh, But this was the way he created Adam 
uh, 6,000 years ago and said you got two choices. One is the tree of life. One is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, you know, you've often, you often hear people say, why in, the Lord would, why in the world would the Lord do that? Well, he's a free moral agent. He couldn't be limited to nothing but right choices and be nothing more than an automaton. And so for him to be a free moral agent, you know, there had to be wrong choices as well as right choices. And of course, Adam allowed himself to be influenced by the evil presence of, of Satan in the garden. He and his demonic host had been cast back into the earth. And essentially, uh, Adam bowed his knee to a new God. The one that he obeyed is the one that he serves. And he lost his dominion that was created to him, to Satan, by obeying Satan. His dominion and authority in the earth was transferred to Satan. So Satan has the legal right as God of this world to manipulate many things that happen in this natural arena. That's simply something that we all need to be aware of. But, you know, when Adam allowed himself to be influenced in this way and made the wrong choice, it was a choice for death and cursing. And death and cursing came into the whole earth at that point. The whole earth was cursed as a result of Adam's choice. Choice to ignore what God said and to go with another influence that he really didn't even know much about. And so as that occurred, death entered into the entire creation. Wasn't there. Until then, it was just the life of God. It was God's creative hand <clears throat> that produced everything up to that point. But when Adam made his choice, the earth became cursed. And therefore, everything in it, plant life, animal life, everything was touched by that curse and the corruption that it produced. And the earth itself, the ground itself was cursed so that the fruitful place uh, could no longer be duplicated by Adam without the sweat of his brow to produce anything. It was going to be a labor. It was going to be anything other than, you know, an experience in the Garden of Eden, walking with God in the cool of the day. No more. Because death and cursing had entered in. It's important you don't see that as God's you know, almost petulant judgment for a man that made somebody that made a decision he didn't like He's going to hammer them with death and cursing. Don't see it that way. The Bible tells us in Colossians 1.17 that by Him all things consist. All things are held together by Him. And He and His Word are one. And so when Adam denied His Word and acted contrary to that Word, all creation shuddered because it is God and His Word by which all things consist, according to the Bible. And so it's Adam made a choice that undermined the life and blessing that was to be a part of the creative design. He undermined that by his rebellious decision to ignore God. He chose. I want you to see judgment henceforth in this way, because too often... 
whether it's as we get into the covenants and we're told, uh, you know, that this is the way we should live and we make another choice and then we blame God because the hammer comes down, we brought it down on ourselves. And, you know, there is a, a strain of dangerous teaching now that has corrupted the grace message, which is a beautiful message, but it would suggest that, you know, it doesn't really matter how we behave now, that in this dispensation, God's grace is always going to make up for it. If you hear that anywhere, including this church, ignore it, because I don't deliberately put anybody in the pulpit that I know is going to preach that kind of heresy, because that's what it is. God's grace will assure you that He's going to give you many, many, many opportunities over time to get it right. You know, but when you deliberately continue in a pattern of living that is contrary to the principle of God's Word, you will come to a point where you experience cursing and death. And do not blame the Lord. He said this is a product of your choice. And His grace probably would have brought that experience of cursing and death to bear far before, long before it actually does. But that will be the end of your experience if, if you deliberately live contrary to the Word. Sorry about that. Uh, might talk a little more about this momentarily. I realize that disturbs some people, but suck it up. That's the Word. Amen. That's what the Word says. So basically, uh, you know, Adam does his thing. The earth is cursed. God has to initiate his plan of redemption, which const is constituted by two covenants. One we call the old, one we call the new. And they are the centerpieces of his plan of redemption for humanity. And therefore, it will have an effect on all of creation. But basically, uh, the old covenant and the new covenant uh, are very much alike in every way except one, uh, which I think you can, you can figure out what that one way is. His name is Jesus. But basically, both covenants operate uh, on the uh, basis that blood must be shed before there can be remission of sin. And both covenants operate on the basis that faith is ultimately what will gain you right standing with God. That was true of Abraham under the old covenant. God, told, God said that his faith was accounted unto him for righteousness. Faith in what? Well, faith in what God had told him and revealed to him. You know, uh, individually or through the mouths of prophets or through, you know, uh, later through the written word. I mean, God's primary source of uh, instruction to all of us right now is the Bible, the written Word of God. But, you know, there's also the Word delivered to you specific to your life that may not be talked about in the Word that the Holy Spirit brings to you. And there'll be just times that He speaks to you and you know something. Occasionally, the office of the prophet will speak to groups of people. But essentially, you know, uh, man has to act on the Word of God that, 
the, the Lord has made available to him. Uh, Abram decided that he would. He believed what God said, and it was accounted to him for righteousness or right standing. The same is true for us in the, in the new covenant. We too have to believe <coughs> the things that God's word reveals to us, and we have to accommodate it in our behavior and the decisions we make that constrain our behavior and how we live our life. That's why the word says that faith without corresponding action is dead. Now, really, I think the meaning of that verse in James 2.17 should be, uh, you know, looked at this way, that if you are in faith, your corresponding action will not contradict your faith. If you are in faith, your corresponding action will not contradict your faith. It's possible to act legalistically and not have any faith at all. And that's oftentimes what religion does to people. But the bottom line is we have to come to a recognition of the fact that Jesus said our life is going to be unto us according to our faith. All things are possible to who? Him that believeth. This is the core consideration of how we experience life now. Are we believing the right things and then are we acting on the right things? Because those considerations go hand in hand. If you believe that it would be better if you weren't in adultery, but you get in adultery anyway, uh, you know, that says that basically your carnal desire was stronger than uh, the desire God placed in your heart by revealing a better decision for your life. But you can generate a greater desire through your faith than your carnal nature can impose on you. And so that's what our target is as we grow in faith. If there are areas of your life where you're allowing your carnal nature, your fleshly desire to dictate behavior to you, then uh, you haven't grown enough in faith there. There needs to be a little more listening to the Word, study of the Word, meditating of the Word, seeing your life lived out in line with that Word. And then you build, as we talked about, a stronghold for God through your thought life, through what you've heard, through what you've meditated on. And then the next time you have an opportunity to eat that whole pecan pie or whatever it is you might do, uh, you know, you'll have a stronger desire uh, not to sugar up the temple too badly, you know, not to, to, I mean, you know, we're told that we're to take care of this temple, uh, to make it a worthy temple for the Lord to inhabit, uh, to make our bodies a living sacrifice. This opens a whole new rabbit trail on nutritious eating, restrained eating, and working out, which I will avoid. But basically, you know, the idea is, uh, you know, God says that we all sin from time to time. Uh, that's meaning that as we are growing in God, our carnal natures will occasionally get the best of us because the enemy, you know, he knows what your weaknesses are. He watches you. He listens to you. And he will run by 
I mean, there was one Christmas, I got something like 13 or 14 pecan pies. I wasn't able to throw away a one of them. I wasn't able to give away one of them. I wound up eating every one of those pecan pies. <clears throat> I'm kind of making a joke about pecan pie because it's one of my, well, it's one of my weaknesses. So basically the enemy does, does focus there. I've got other ones that I'm not going to tell you about that he also uh, tries to exploit. And occasionally he does. And when he does, you know, it grieves my heart. There's something God calls godly sorrow that rises up. And, you know, and I acknowledge to God that I've missed it. And that, you know, by his grace, I'm going to be able to overcome that evil tendency. And the blood of Jesus cleanses me from the effect of that unrighteousness and puts me right back on track. And that's, he says that, you know, we're going to sin like that because our carnal nature hadn't been regenerated yet. And of course, uh, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be a, you know, a battle for our lifetimes, but it can become uh, a battle that is already really you've won because the enemy knows you've gotten him in that area and you've gotten him in that area and you've gotten him in that area. This is the growing process of faith. Amen. Boy, I'll tell you what, I can't keep from going on rabbit trails. But the point is, there, is, there are two factors on which both covenants operate. One is the shedding of blood, and the other is faith. So let's look at the shedding of blood for a moment. And I'm just going to do this. So I can say I've turned to a few verses. I haven't looked at any verses yet, and that's not a good thing. Um, let me begin with uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. And I'm going to do this from the Amplified, because I like the way it reads. In fact, under the law, almost everything is purified by means of blood. And without the shedding of blood... There is neither release from sin and its guilt, nor the remission of the due and merited punishment for sin. That says it well. There has to be a shedding of blood. And under the old covenant, it was animal blood, because Jesus hadn't come yet. And yet God wanted this bridge, this covenant, this connection with His the apex of his creation, mankind. And so the life, this is an important thing to consider, the, the, the power of atonement that is in the blood because of the life that is in the blood. And this is animal life. This is not even a man. But it is innocent in that it is an animal and uh, can provide the power that is, the, is, that is in that life and the blood uh, will atone or cover for the sin and cursing that is in the earth for a short while, for a little bit, even to the extent of perhaps experiencing or relating to God. And, uh, but then, you know, the, the perfect redeemer for mankind is another man. So animal blood wouldn't get it. Let's look at the next verse in Hebrews 9, 12. This is Jesus. 
He went once for all into the holy of holies of heaven, not by virtue of the blood of goats and calves, by which to make reconciliation between God and man, but his own blood, having found and secured a complete redemption and everlasting release for us. Somebody ought to say hallelujah. Then we see again in uh, Romans chapter 5, in verse 24, he says, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Next verse says, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past. The word propitiation in the Greek, according to Strong's Concordance, means simply atoning victim. Atoning victim, whom God has set forth to be an atoning victim, but it's only going to be through your faith invested in His blood. He sheds the blood, but you have to invest your faith in what that blood will accomplish in your life. And that's why it's so important that we understand and have a revelation of some of these basic uh, principles of redemption. There is life in that blood. Well, it needed to be a man that was the redeemer for man. But in Adam, all men died. There wasn't a man that wasn't touched by spiritual death on this earth. So there was nobody on this earth God could use because he was still spiritually alive in order to make the payment for the death that Adam had brought upon himself and all of humanity. So he only had one choice, really, and that was to assign a member of the Godhead to take on human flesh and then shed that pure blood on Adam's behalf. And that's exactly what happened. Jesus got the assignment. He laid down the glory and splendor of heaven took on the poverty of the human condition. He avoided the seed of man, which in in Adam all men die. So the spiritual death was passed down through the seed of man. He He avoided that by being sure that this was a conception of a baby in a woman's womb without a man. So the overshadowing power of the Holy Spirit in Mary's life caused her to conceive of the seed of God's Word. And it wasn't a man involved there. Uh, Mary herself is spiritually dead. She's not to be deified. She sinned like anybody else. Uh, Spiritual death was a fact of Mary's life. And so you might ask, well, how could Jesus grow inside her womb and not be touched by, uh, by that death? Well, the Bible says that life is in the blood. That means death, which is an absence of life, is also a particular of the blood. That's why Adam had nothing to give of God to any of his progeny once he had died spiritually. And so we see Mary's uh, you know, becoming pregnant by the Holy Spirit, voiding the seed of man, and the baby is p- protected in the woman by her placenta, 
from the mother's blood. Is that a coincidence? That's the way God created it. I would say this is part and parcel of understanding how somebody came into this earth legally through childbirth because God says in John 10 that anybody that enters this earth by any method other than natural childbirth is a thief and a robber. That's why Satan has no legal authority, you know, past what Adam had given to him in this earth. He was a thief and a robber. And so it had to happen by natural childbirth for him to be a redeemer for all of mankind. It had to avoid the seed of man. It had to avoid the blood that was in Mary, which was tainted by spiritual death. All of that occurs within that framework of the Holy Spirit's overshadowing, the placenta protecting Jesus from Mary's blood, and born into this earth was the first spiritually alive human being to walk this earth since Adam. The one who qualified as the, as the redeemer for fallen mankind, who could pay the price required to restore God's creation to its intended purpose. And so Jesus shed his blood, paid the price to the uttermost farthing, was beaten, was humiliated, went three days and three nights into the heart of the earth, led captivity captive when he was raised later, stripped the enemy of the keys of hell and death, <clears throat> hell and death, and put redemption into humanity's sphere of physical reality. Wow. This, this is an awesome truth. I should also mention, what does it mean when he went to, uh, you know, when he led captivity captive? He went to, he descended into the bowels of the earth to pay, you know, part of the penalty of sin is separation from God. So God the Son had to be separated from God the Father to fulfill the obligation of paying the full penalty for Adam's sin, to be separated from the Father. And that's when he said, Lord, Lord, why hast, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He was separated from God, went into hell, into the bowels of the earth, three days and three nights, as we saw prophetically occurred with Jonah. Uh, and then, of course, you know, uh, paid the full penalty, took everything that the darkness and forces of hell could bring to bear against him. When God decided the payment had been fulfilled, justice had been served, he called him forth. And when he came forth, he brought the keys of hell and death and he led captivity captive. So who is that captivity? Well, we know from uh, the account of Lazarus and the rich man in the Gospel of Luke, for example, that hell is actually a, mul a multiple-faceted uh, compartment beneath the earth. And this, most of the, the current Bible scholars that are not traditional in their approach agree on this. Hell is beneath the earth. It's fascinating to me that we know less about what lies under the earth, under the surface of the earth, than we do about the universe around us. The deepest well we've ever drilled has barely penetrated the outer crust of the earth. But, you know, instrumentation has given us some understanding of what's there, and we've seen 
examples of the magma and the melted rock and the intense heat and fire that is occasionally spewed by volcanoes, but we really don't know what's down there. So most of the scholars say that hell, Abraham's bosom or paradise, and Tartarus are three compartments down there. The Tartarus is where the angels, the fallen angels that left their first estate and cohabitated with human women were chained. Uh, you know, they were taken out of circulation and chained in Tartarus until the day of judgment, final judgment. Hell is where the enemy is sent at the end of this dispensation and his defeat at the Battle of Armageddon. He'll be sent there, and it's a place where anyone that doesn't have a covenant with God goes, and Abraham's bosom is a compartment down there, and we know from the account of Lazarus and the rich man that even though there's a gulf betwixt, there can be some interaction between those in hell and those that are in Abraham's bosom. And of course, uh, that's where men like Abraham, who have been counted as righteous by virtue of their belief system, but Jesus hasn't come yet to cleanse them with his blood so they can't stand in the presence of God yet until that blood has cleansed them. And so these are the ones that Jesus led captive, or led captivity captive. He brought all of the Old Testament saints that had believed, looking forward to the cross. We believe looking back to the cross. But those that were believers in the coming of the Messiah, in what God had said, would be saved until the day they could be exposed to the finished work of Jesus and then go on and experience an eternity in the presence of God. So then, I haven't gotten long. I'll see what I can do. Um, so then, where are we? Understanding the importance and the power of faith to appropriate the benefits of redemption. We understand that without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sin. There can be no redemptive plan. Understanding the process that has occurred to this point then, where are we in God's plan of redemption? We are at the end of the church age, which will end, I believe, any day now, because you can do the math. You know we're in that season. Over 2,000 years has passed. It has been prophesied that that is essentially, the length of the church age. Uh, and so we're close to the shout, the trumpet, and the rapture of the church. A literal event. This isn't a metaphor for anything. It's documented in scriptures that are separate and that corroborate one another. It is a fact of church doctrine that at the end of the church age, there will come a shout, a trump. The dead in Christ will rise first. Now what happens to the dead? Those that have died before Jesus actually comes, what would happen to you? You're a believer if you died before the rapture. Well, your body would get buried. It would go into the earth or cremated, whatever you want to do, but it would go back to the dust of the earth. 
and your spirit, which is eternal, would go to be with God in heaven. But on a long-term eternal basis, our rulership with Jesus Christ in the eternal ages to come over a physical, temporal, universal creation requires us to have a body. We can't function legally in this universal creation without a body. So all the saints that have gone before have got to get their bodies back. And so that's what's going to happen first. We which are alive and remain, uh, you know, are going to be caught up to be with our Lord in the air. And in the twinkling of an eye, mortality is going to become immortality. Corruption is going to become incorruption. We will get a glorified body that will enable us to fulfill His plan for our lives in the eternal ages to come. An, an amazing body. You know, uh, do a lot of different things. It's not going to have a pot belly or a bald spot or pimples or bumps or blemishes or rashes. It's going to be looking good, man. And it's going to have a lot of amazing attributes. You can walk through uh, walls. I mean, the, the physical arena doesn't restrain uh, a, a glorified body. It moves through space and time at a rate approaching the speed of thought. I mean, because if it was just the speed of light, which I heard somebody preach once, and heaven is a planet somewhere else in the, uh, the universal creation, which that is only logical. I'm not going back on that rabbit trail again. But uh, then, you know, Jesus is going to the right hand of the Father who lives in the capital city of heaven, the new Jerusalem. And so Jesus is going to be at his right hand. If he was going at the speed of light, he'd still be on his way. He wouldn't be there for a long time to come yet. So our uh, glorified bodies are going to be able to move through space and time. And I don't know what to call it except the speed of thought. You know, you ever watch uh, Star Trek? What are those machines they've got? Transporters. Maybe God's got a Holy Ghost transporter. They can just ship you off to some quadrant of the universe where you're assigned to fulfill your eternal destiny, which is to rule and reign with Him forever. Over the, you know, to be His ambassador, to be ministers of reconciliation, to inform all of the other life forms out there about the one true God. That is our job. That is what we get to do. And you know there's other life forms out there. It's what the Bible says. I just mentioned Isaiah 45, 18. It says he creates nothing without form or void, which means empty. He creates to be inhabited. Well, who created the whole universe? God did. He creates to be inhabited. And we see mention of winged creatures, four-headed beasts in Scripture anyway. Yes, there's other life out there that needs to be introduced to God. You know, the Lord told Abram, your seed is going to be, number one, is the sands of the sea. Number two, is the stars of the heavens. I believe the sand of the sea, seed, refers to the natural seed of Abraham through Isaac. But we're told, spiritually, we are also Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So I believe we're the seed that he says are as numerous as the stars of the heavens, and it indicates the direction of our ministry. 
The Jews are to be uh, God's earthly emissaries on this earth. Uh, They're the ones that are going to be charged with informing the masses of people that don't even know the Lord has returned when the millennium begins. I'm getting ahead of myself. We stopped at the rapture. Okay. Then there's seven years of tribulation period on the earth. uh, And that is the judgment of God balancing the scales of justice. But, you know, we are not appointed unto wrath, so we won't be here. We're out of here at that period of, during that period of time. We're going to be in heaven. First stop will probably be the judgment seat of Christ, not for the dissemination of punishment, but for the dissemination of reward. Now, I'm, you know, I believe we're all going to get a well done. Thou good and faithful servant, you made it. Amen. That's been ruler of few things. I'll make you ruler over much. But then after the judgment seat, we get to celebrate for seven years at the marriage supper of the Lamb. I could talk about that a lot too, but I don't have time. It's going to be a a great celebration. Then we'll join our Lord for the final battle uh, in the Valley of Megiddo at Armageddon where Antichrist is defeated. And upon his defeat, he and his demonic host are cast into hell. And Jesus will begin his millennial reign. The people on this earth are not going to be the church. We're gone. We've got an eternal destiny to fulfill. Even though we live in the new Jerusalem, which will be relocated at the end of the millennium on the planet earth, uh, and that's where our mansions are going to be, our ministry is not earthly. That will be the Jewish ministry as we see it unveiled in the scripture. So Jesus will... Uh, you know, for a thousand years, rule on the earth, and there'll be no influence of evil because Satan will have been consigned to the demonic pit. What an amazing experience that'll be. Now, these are natural people. They're not the church. We're glorified. These are natural people going into the millennium. They'll still be marrying, getting married, having kids. They'll have access to eternal life the same way God created Adam to have access to it by eating of the trees of life that lined the broad ways of heaven. And they'll get to go to Jerusalem and worship the Lord and all of that. <clears throat> but they're natural, they're natural people. They're not born again people. They're not, uh, they're not glorified bodies type people. Uh, they're earthly people and life on earth will continue under the Lord in the manner that I've just described. And um, now, let's see. So, Antichrist is defeated, consigned to hell for a thousand years. At the end of that thousand year reign, it says that Satan and his demonic hordes are going to be released for a short season to to deceive one final time whom he may. It's like purging all of humanity. from rebellious tendencies, I guess. I don't know how else to view this, uh, but he does deceive a lot of people that once again engage, the Antichrist will engage our Lord. He'll be defeated for one final time and on this occasion is cast into the lake of fire. Different than hell itself, but cast into the lake of fire. Now this is the end of the millennial reign of the Lord. And so at the millennial reign, after that last 
uh, deceive who he may, and casting into the lake of fire, the earth will be purified by fire. All of the corruption on the planet earth that has accumulated through the years of unregenerate man's occupation, <laughs> it's all going to be purified. That's why I'm not into recycling. The earth's going to get recycled anyway. <laughs> no, for my green friends out there, I recycle occasionally, but hey, the earth's going to get recycled anyway. Going to be purified by fire, and we're going to, uh, you know, be a fit habitation for the Lord at that point. That's when the Apostle John sees uh, the replanting of New Jerusalem. New Jerusalem actually coming down from heaven to earth so God can reside with His mankind for the eternal ages to come. And of course, you'll be there in your mansion uh, in that New Jerusalem, except for when it's time to go out and minister the next morning. Your glorified body will take you wherever your universal assignment is. And according to the Word, we're going to be raised in ranks. We're going to be raised in companies. The implication clearly being we're going to be serving in eternity together. So if you've got a problem with me, you need to go find another church now because you're going to get stuck for eternity with me if you don't. That's the implication of Scripture. And so, you know, we'll go out to wherever our assignment is, whatever solar system, whatever culture or race of people needs to be introduced to God, we'll do our stuff. It'll be exciting. The laws of faith will prevail just as we've learned on this earth. We'll see the hand of God move in mighty ways throughout the eternal ages to come as we rule and reign with Christ forever in a temporal universe. And that is the plan of redemption. From start all the way through to finish. It has been abbreviated because you can't do a comprehensive discussion of the entire plan uh, in two Sundays. But uh, you got a pretty good bite of it.